0: Non-benders alike, Welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney.
1: And I'm Dante Bosco. And this week we're delighted to be joined by another fantastic cast member from the first Avatar series, now, technically, we had him on the podcast before, but that was our live New York Comic-Con show, and we didn't actually talk to him.
0: No, that's right. You know, he and Michaela Murphy were were too busy bringing their A-game to voicing Toph and Iroh and the table reads we did live at New York Comic-Con, including, may we add, being in full and amazing cosplay as their characters. And then they had to head out immediately to a photo shoot because we, as a podcast, were certainly not going to be the ones to keep them from getting pics with the many, many fans who were super excited to do that
1: that's right so we knew we had to spend a little more time with him on the podcast so please join us in welcoming the wonderful greg bodwin
2: to braving the elements hello my friends hello hello. it is good to share tea together welcome (laughs) uncle welcome
1: oh Oh my gosh my pleasure oh my goodness how are you doing
0: it's so good to see you
2: i'm doing great you know having a wonderful season here and you know uh in new mexico and uh love it thank you for having me
0: I loves me some New Mexico it's a wonderful state
2: the land of enchantment
0: <laughs> one of my favorite flags of state flags
2: and mine too the Zia Sun yeah it's easy yeah one of the things that I liked most when my wife and I were thinking like kids were grown up and we like, oh you know it's time to leave LA we can go someplace else and I was born here but what really sold us on it fun fact New Mexico is the fifth largest state in land area and the population is just slightly more than that of the San Fernando Valley
0: Wow. So wow. to yeah. put it in
2: a perspective, you got a little yes. breathing room here, you yes, know. Yes, indeed. I, I love it here.
0: Yes, I do too. You know, I'm from Arizona and I, there's such a little sisterhood between those two states. So uh, I love it. I love it. Um, just a a quick flashback to when we did the reading and your Comic-Con, um, there was like a real, like, palatable sort of pause when you read your first roll line. I'm sure you remember and those of you who listened to the really? episode that we that we put through the feed in addition to doing it live, like it was so lovely. Like it just felt like everyone sort of settled in. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like <gasps> Yeah. Oh.
2: Literally, I, I can, sometimes when I do the voice, and I'm not even exaggerating, I have done the voice and grown men have cried. Yeah. yeah. People are love that voice. And of course, it's not my voice. It's the voice of the late, great Mako Iwamatsu that I'm attempting to replicate. But people, there's a comfort to that voice, you know? It's, dare I say it, like a heartbreakingly delicious cup of jasmine tea. Oh,
0: it is. <laughs> it ah. is. I know. I know. Dante, what's that like for you?
1: It's crazy to hear because it's so good. And again, you know, and I've talked to Greg about it. Like I grew up with Mako as a, you know, mentor. I knew him since I was 12. And uh, you never think of someone's voice like that, how kind of impactful it is. And then I've been in the room with Greg doing the voice or or even to me hearing it again. I have that same feeling and it's very unique. This is one of those Hollywood stories that who could have wrote this? This is so
2: odd. The way it happened, especially now that I'm a little older now, and actually when you get older, you can look back on your life and you can sort of see how point A led to point B, which led to point C. And the reason you're even talking to me today is because of a birthday gift that I received in 1977 from my parents. Uh, You know, oddly enough, everything on the internet is not true. I never actually had the privilege of meeting (laughs) Mako. No? No, I I never met him. I met his daughter and his uh, grandson, who's also named Mako. Uh But I've loved musicals since I was a child from as long as I can remember. And all I wanted for my birthday and Christmas was albums from Broadway shows. Mm And in 1977, uh, my parents gave me an album uh, from a show called Pacific Overtures by Stephen Sondheim, Mm -hmm. starred an actor named Mako Iwamatsu, and he literally opens Mm -hmm. the show. He was nominated for a Tony for this. And I... I mean to this day I could sing the entire score and and I will now if you'd like I can do it you know <laughs> no, that's we're here The for. floating Kingdom <laughs> but I heard this iconic voice for the very first time and I thought oh my god that's the most interesting voice I've ever heard in my life
0: hmm. and
2: at the time it was I think pre-Sweeney Todd and Sondheim was dealing with some things that were unheard of in musicals at the time. He was dealing with geopolitics and not a boy-meets-girl, boy-loses-girl story, but a story about how America went in and kind of screwed up Japan. Uh, All of it done kabuki-style. And I literally fell in love with this musical. I would sing along with it not knowing... That flash forward to 2006, I had actually been working on a Mako impression for 30 years. That's
0: beautiful. So I,
2: I love the fact, just like Iroh says, you know, uh, uh, destiny is a funny thing. And in my case, it certainly was a funny thing. If if I had not received that album, mm. someone else would have gotten the role. That's wild. Wow. So it's something as seemingly innocuous as a record album could have become one of the most important if not the most important gift I would ever get and it's it's framed now it's on on my wall in the office here
0: wow Oh, that is exactly what you want to be true. Like you want this story. You couldn't come up with it on your own. But when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that that's what I wanted the origin yeah. story to be of you doing the voice. But it's perfect. It fits perfectly into the sort of tribute to him. Now, before we talk more about that, um, you're a theater guy, right? Like You weren't just a person who was going to see stuff. You were doing theater. So when did that start for you? You said you were born in in New Mexico. Tell us more about uh, where you came from.
2: It was 1970, December 10th, 1970. I don't know if it was December 10th, but it was in December. And (laughs) uh, my parents had dropped us off to see a film called Scrooge with Albert Finney, a musical. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. I was only 10 years old, but I remember my brother and I walked in early so that the film was ending and we were going to stay and watch it again. My parents dropped us off early. And the ending of the, uh, the film was just joy heaped on top of joy, singing, dancing, happiness. And I remember just 10 years old, it's crying. It was mm-hmm. it was literally almost like a religious experience. I saw what was happening on that screen. And it was like, I want to make other people feel as happy as this is making me feel right now. And from that point on, you know, I fell in love with the theater. I started doing theater and did it pretty much—a little thing called COVID sort of got in the way, so I haven't really done any theater since I left Los Angeles. But every three years or so, I have to go back to the stage and just sort of, you know, regroup because you can't fix it in post. Yeah. You know, it's something that's yeah. so yeah. immediate, and every audience is different, and your relationship with every audience is different, and there's absolutely nothing like it, yeah. you know. I would love to do it again, hopefully soon, but I'm on the road so much now, it's very difficult to, you know, commit to a run of a, of a show, but, you know, knock on wood, hopefully maybe this year I can get back to the stage.
0: Yeah. Well, it's not surprising that you also enjoy doing cons and stuff like Dante and I do, because... It certainly isn't the same as doing theater, but even just doing panels and having that interaction is more real and pure and personal than being in a voiceover booth and never getting to see what the response is. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that that would be something that you would feel fed from spiritually in some way because it is more interactive, right?
2: Well, you know, I I always knew, I think we all knew when we were on the show that this show is a well-written show. Uh, But I didn't realize, until I, you know, started going out to these cons and meeting fans that I realized the direct impact that this show has had on people's lives. And it it still kind of blows me away to think that that, people will say, you know, I I didn't have, I I get this a lot, I didn't really have a father figure, and Iroh was my father figure, you know, Mm -hmm. and things like that. I was going through this rough patch in my life. I mean... I think the first time I really realized there's something else going on here, I got a DM on Twitter from someone and they said, you know, Mr. Baldwin, I hate to bother you. I didn't know who else to ask, but my dad died last night and I would like some whiz- some wise words.
0: Oh. Oh. And I'm going, that is
2: way above my pay grade, you know, oh. but right. I, I did my best and, you know, immediately Googling, I wrote quotes that might be applicable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's when I realized there's there's something going on here. This isn't just a show. This isn't just a role. This is something bigger than that.
0: Absolutely. Wow. Well, Dante, when he tells the story about the first time he heard you do the voice, oh, yeah. you know, it's just, it's it's such a great Do you story. remember that day, Greg?
2: I remember, I remember that day because I was terrified beyond belief. You have I'm no sure. idea how terrified I room. was. Yeah, You were in the small room,
1: and you're away from all, and the way Nickelodeon's set up is there's a big room we're all in, and there's a private room where one person's in, and Greg was in the small room, and we didn't see him. And then you started talking. I think the all, all of us in the other room started crying. It was
2: wild it was it was something, and i and and I would again, I have to thank everyone for being so kind to me because it was a very scary situation. i was I'd done some work, but mostly I did theater. I did some voice acting, but not a lot. I literally was working at Disney business and Legal Affairs at the time. Hmm. Uh, and so I was coming into this situation where I know I'm not only replacing this iconic character but the iconic actor who played the iconic character. Yeah. And everyone was so kind to me. I, I, yes, I absolutely remember your reaction that day, Dante. Absolutely. And I thank you for it. No. It, it definitely made a very scary day a little less scary. Uh,
1: I mean, I, we couldn't have asked for a, a better actor to come in and, and to, to continue the
2: journey with us. You know? You're too kind. Too kind, my friend. Too kind.
0: Yeah. What was the process? I mean, Dante, remind folks some of the different roles that you ended up stepping into because it wasn't just Avatar.
1: Yeah, I mean you've done you did many things for Mako. Aku yeah, I... from the 5th season of Samurai Jack. We, of course Avatar. Avatar um, there s- was Master
2: Splinter and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Although Mako was credited as he should be, I think probably about 60% of the dialogue was me. Hmm. Wow. And somebody came up to me at a con one time with a Splinter Funko Pop and said, well, you sign this?" Well, so I don't know how to sign this because I'm not really Splinter. So I signed it now as Greg Baldwin, eh, sort of Splinter. Splitterish. Nice.
0: What was that process like? I mean, which thing came first? And was it one of those things where sort of when it became known that you had done such a phenomenal job, you know, the first time, word spreads and that people were like, let's talk to Greg about this, too.
2: I think that's how it happened. Samurai Jack was a very different process than Avatar, where I think I went through like four auditions for that. I never even really auditioned for Samurai Jack. A friend had called me up and said, you know, did you hear they're doing Samurai Jack?" And I said, yeah, they haven't called me. So I figured they'd replaced me. You know, these things happen. Yeah. And I get a call one day and they say, "Gendy would like you to come to the first recording session and actually do the gig to see if he wants to work with you. And I'm going, oh, great, man. It's like that way. I, I figured, you know, what if he doesn't like me? What if he hates me? And the most beautiful <laughs> words, as I was leaving the session. Gendy goes, you know, thank you. I'll see you again
0: soon. And I'm going, all right. I think ah. I got the gig, you know yes oh that's wonderful nice.
1: in doing this very unique thing about Mako, what's your approach when you take on a role like how do you i mean there's no one better than you to kind of do this journey
2: with us because you're so humble and thoughtful but <laughs> it's a very you. unique thing how do you go about it well you know i the first thing again is i always have to find the voice especially you know for a Mako role and i hearken back to pacific overtures and I always, you know, in my head or sometimes even when I'm doing a cameo or whatever, I'll do it right here in the booth just to get the voice back. And it's uh, a line that he has towards the end of the show where he says, Nippon, the floating kingdom, there was a time when foreigners were not welcome here, but that was long ago. And I do that and I sort of, and I not only get the voice, but I think I get the spirit of it too. Because, it's like you an know,
0: incantation. Uh, uh, yeah.
2: In some ways, yeah, I think it is, you know. Uh, Again, I never met the man. I look forward to meeting him very much, maybe Mm. 20 years from now. Maybe, you know, 20, 30 (laughs) years from now would be okay. You know, going to meet my maker. No, I'm going to meet Mako.
0: Oh my gosh! Wow. I'm like I've been on the verge of tears this entire conversation. Essentially, thank goodness you're funny because you keep sort of lifting me out of just being like. Oh. <laughs> <that'll> <laughs> be. Good, thank you. Yeah, we did it. We did an episode <laughs> recently of remembering Mako, and we had um, Andrea and and Mike and Brian. And one of yeah. the things that always comes up when we talk about him is it's just very natural to also add what a lovely and wonderful job you did. And I think it's pretty out there um, in the internets uh, and in the world that. You in the past had said, you know, I don't really feel comfortable singing Leaves from the Vine. Um, Is that still true? And what can you just for anybody who hasn't heard this, um, could you sort of uh, refresh us?
2: It is by far the biggest request that I get. And to this day, I have not fulfilled it once because it's Mm -hmm. it's not my song. It's his song. And that's on a more noble way of putting it. It's my way of, of saying thank you for what you've given me. I honor your life. I respect your legacy. But also, on a more mundane level, I'm not as good an actor as Mako. I can't sing it as well. You know, I don't what? want to sully people's memory of that <laughs> with me singing no. it.
0: But you put it in such a lovely way that, you know, it's like you don't shame anyone for having that request. I think you just sort of spin the perspective enough that I'm sure people walk away going like, I love you even more than I did before I asked you to sing the song, you know, because it's it's such a a good response. It's a very Iroh response, I think.
2: Well, you know, the weird thing is, and it does sound a little weird, but the longer I do this and go to the cons and... I'm sort of becoming Iroh in a way. You know, does that right. sound weird? Just are you saying Just by you, being you get, this... you're
0: getting older and you have the... Yeah, yeah. I love that. Tell us more. Being
2: Iroh adjacent to all of the wise things that he says, many of which I know I found, I guess to put it this way, you know, Iroh, I think, makes everyone a better version of themselves. From Prince Zuko to millions of fans all over the world to me. I am absolutely a better human because of the role of Uncle Iroh. It has absolutely made me a better person. During the... Uh, The worst days of the pandemic, my wife and I had moved. We arrived here in New Mexico on March 1st, 2020. Terrible timing. You know, I have a daughter in Pasadena, son lives in New York City. We're freaking out. The world is closed down. There's no toilet paper. I'm walking around (laughs) one day going, oh, my God, we've (laughs) abandoned our children. This is horrible. What's going to happen? It's the end of the world. And I heard uh, just some birds singing as I was out on my walk. And in my head, I heard Mako's voice saying, you know, if you look for the light, you will often find it. If you look for the dark, that is all you will ever see. So from that point on during the pandemic, no matter how bad things got, it's as simple as listening to birds singing or feeling the warmth on your skin of the sun. You know, it's the light is everywhere, but it's an active choice. You have to look for the light. And if you do look for the light, you'll find that we're living in the light. Everywhere you look is light, even at night. There's light. Wow. Deep, man. Deep. Ah, We all inspired the Uncle
0: Iroh. Good. It's so So good. And and that's something, you know, we feel so lucky that during the pandemic, we got to do this podcast and talk about just the kind of stuff that you're talking about. And so, you know, we also knew firsthand, even when we couldn't do conventions, how important Iroh was to people and how important this show was for people especially during the pandemic. And obviously that's continued on past it and was there before, but um, what a great place to be able to settle into uh, having that for reference and then not just having it as your comfort show, but realizing that you're taking it outside of the show, even if you're, you know, you're not a part of the the show, but you're a fan and you find yourself doing the same thing, you know, hearing Iroh in your head and really paying attention to things differently. And what an enormous gift to yeah, he, all it, of us. it has
2: changed my perspective. You know, it changes it changes everyone's perspective. Once you start listening to the show, listening to the words, you know and the words are beautiful. The writers could not have possibly given us more beautiful things to oh, say. Yes. You know? Yeah.
0: I keep forgetting there's writers sometimes. Like we said that we told Tim Hedrick that we're like, you're so good at writing Iroh that we kind of don't believe you wrote it. <laughs> like you like you shot yourself in the foot by being so good. Iroh's so real to us that we're like, I mean, you didn't really write it, right? Like Iroh said that. You didn't write that, right?
2: The Iroh said it. It was Iroh all along. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> now, we, when we saw you at New York City Comic Con, uh, you were in a, an amazing Iroh cosplay. How? And Michaela was in an amazing Toph cosplay. Like, how did your Iro cosplay come along?
2: Well, you know, I always wanted to cosplay Iroh, but I don't know how to make costumes. You know, I, I don't know anything about that. And at the time, I was visiting my little brother, who's the, uh, I think at the time, he was the entertainment director for the Texas Renaissance Festival.
0: And I'd gone down there to
2: go to the festival with him, and he said, You know, hey, hey, you know, Big Brother, go see my costumers. They'll pick you up, you know, like a medieval sort of costume. And he had this team, and they were going to suddenly occur to me, (gasps) You guys be interested in making an Iroh costume (sighs) by chance? Yeah. And they said, Oh, yeah, absolutely. (sighs) And so originally, I just wanted the costume. All I wanted to do, and it literally happened the first time I put it on, I just wanted to walk around the con. As a cosplayer, you know, just like anybody else. And the first time, and this is what I wanted to happen, and it's happened several times now, but the first time was in, I think, Ontario. And I'm walking around, somebody says, Hey, Iroh, man, great cosplay. Oh, I thank you very much, my friend. And from behind me, I hear somebody say, Crap, I think that really is Uncle Iroh. And I'm like, Oh, my work here is done, my friends. My work is done. Time for some tea.
1: Amazing,
2: and that, that's happened oh. several times, and that's my favorite part of it. It's just wandering around, freaking people out when I do the voice.
1: That's so. Good. That's wonderful.
2: The wig is a little problematic. I've told my wife, the wig and the sideburns... They're
1: always problematic, the wigs.
2: Yeah, the wigs. I thought, yeah. what if I just grew my hair out, my sideburns there out? There you go. She said, oh, yeah, you can do that, Greg. You can't sleep in my bed, but you're happy. and You can do that anytime <laughs> you want. You know, you can sleep outside in the studio if you want, but no. So apparently my wife is not a big fan of Iroh's, you know, hairstyle and facial chops. hair. I'm sorry. The mutton know. chops. We can't be perfect.
0: We've <laughs> seen that costume. I think you don't need... Just my opinion, but I think it's still golden, even if you choose not to wear that, the hair. It's very, very clear who you are before you even say a word, so, you know, with or without the, the sideburns.
2: If I do another one, I would love to do Buff Iroh and get oh, yeah. the, you know, the oh, yeah. thing, yes. the, the the foam rubber thing so that I could walk around. Yeah. I, man, I would love to do that. That will be the next cosplay yeah. I do. Dragon of the oh, West. Buff Iroh. That's you know, so fun fact. Buff Iroh. The animators used my own torso as the model for that. I don't like to there brag about <laughs> anything at all, you know, it's, you know. I wear this fat suit around because I don't want to intimidate people. I want to be more approachable, so I had this fat suit made for me.
0: You know,
1: it, it works out well.
0: <laughs> Trained with Sifu Kisu, knows all the moves. Yeah. It's everything. it's, yeah, a, it's an open secret. secret. Don't worry. It's an open secret. Everyone knows. I've got to go do
2: it work. right now as a matter of fact. I got some exercises I gotta do. So come on, let's wrap this up. I gotta go. Yeah. Okay, gotta okay. Go. Well, listen. We don't <laughs> no, want yeah, we joking. don't want
0: to keep you from your presses.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Let's talk about some on screen work, Greg. Unfortunately we're gonna have to ask you how
2: was it working with George Clooney and the Cohen brothers? Yeah,
0: buddy. Well such a fan. It was
2: amazing. It was an amazing. again, terrifying. I had never really done a movie before, and the first movie I ever did was a Cohen Brothers movie.
0: Which is Hail Caesar, uh, just in case anybody is. Hail yeah, Caesar, yeah. It. yeah.
2: And, you know, it, it's funny because uh, I think I was talking about it on Twitter. I love Christmas movies, and I was watching The Santa Claus recently, and I love David Krumholtz as Bernard the Elf. <gasps> and he yes. was in the film with me. He was a communist writer with me. And so I think the last day I said, hey, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. Would you, could you mind having lunch with me, you know? So I was sitting there with David Krumholtz, you know, fanboying, because I'm here with Bernard the Elf. And then who should come and sit at the table with us but Joel Cohen? Oh. And I'm, then I'm starting to freak out because, okay, now I've got David Crumholtz and out. Joel Cohen. Yeah. And then in his full Roman regalia, no. No. George Clooney himself comes oh. in and sits down come at on. the table with me. What? And I'm oh, going, come on. I don't even know what to say here, man. What oh I, my God. I don't even know what to say. What am I even doing here? You know? It's like, <laughs> Fortunately, they started talking about The Godfather, and everybody has an opinion about The ah. Godfather. So at least I was able to at least weigh in and not seem like a fool. Ugh. But uh, he is yeah. so nice. The second day of the shoot, uh, one of the reasons I like voice acting is you don't have to get up at 3 a.m. to go shoot. Oh, yeah. You know, It's yep. hard. Yep. And it was an ungodly hour. I had parked, and I was going down to the parking structure, going down to hair and makeup. And he's heading into the studio, and he says to me, Hey, I'll see you in there, Greg. And I'm going, George Clooney knows my name. He knows my name. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He was a very down-to-earth guy. Oddly, and this I don't understand, he's only three years younger than I am. So how come I look like this and he looks like that? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. Good genes, I guess. But he, he is as gorgeous as you would imagine. He is, you know, up close. It's like no one should be that attractive. It's amazing.
0: What is their shooting process like? Do they do a bunch of takes? Do they do, like, how do they run their set, the Coen brothers? They've
2: rehearsed quite a bit. Interestingly mm-hmm. to me, because I always wondered, I-, I love my brother, but I could never work closely with my brother. That would be a huge mistake. And I always wondered how they were able to have this sort of partner, this creative partnership all these years. And I don't know if this is always the case. But I found that when we were on set, Joel pretty much was the one relaying everything to everybody else, and he would confer with Ethan. But he was the like the the forward face. Gotcha. But when when I went back in to do ADR later, it was very clearly Ethan who was sort hmm. of the one calling all the shots, and they would confer. I, I don't know if that's the case for hmm. all of their you know films, but it's that yeah. seemed to place on Hail Caesar. And That's very cool. It, they like to use the same people. This was several years later, and I got called in out of the blue for Macbeth, for Scottish murderer number two. And I go, you know, there's no way I'm going to get this part because I don't look like a Scottish murderer.
0: Uh-huh. So I, I just don't. I can't help it. I
2: don't look like a Scottish murderer. I cannot help it. But you know, they—I literally frogged over. It was like the last audition, and I walked. It was on Warner Brothers, and I was like, wow, this is cool. I get to go in and do this. You know, didn't even have to really audition for it. And I walk in and I was expecting uh, Joel to be there and like on Hail Caesar and the casting director I'd be reading with. And I walk in and I'm reading with Francis McDormand. <gasps> and it's like, holy moly, oh. I am reading with you, you know? And it yes. was like, it was the best I ever felt about not getting a part. Oh. Because I knew there's yeah. no way I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah. get this part, but I had, this is an dream. That was about you getting the gift dream. of,
0: yes. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's so great. Oh.
0: Yeah, Dante and I often talk about the sort of like, it was a short performance, but I was that Scottish murderer for yeah. those few minutes, and that's How part of that? my job. And you guys... it's a mini performance and, and acting class. And exactly,
1: they were so lucky to be the only ones to see this one-time performance. Yes. And I really had a good time. <laughs> that doing was it was so yes. much
2: fun. And we had Joel gave me an adjustment, so I read it through twice. The, the second time. We were looking at each other, we, and it's like, holy moly, I'm actually acting with this great woman. I think multiple Oscar winner. It's like, love it, yeah, and amazing. This life, you know, is, as we all know, it's not without its troubles because it's not the easiest life. But man, you have moments like that that more than makes up for all the times you don't get the part. You know, yeah. Just to absolutely. have that. It, it was magical. It was absolutely magical. And uh, <sighs> I sometimes I, I fully expect to get hit by a bus at any moment, you know, because my life has been so miraculous. These things have happened. Then I never imagined that people would mm-hmm. want to hear what I have to say or be interested and that I get to read with these people and I get it's remarkable. I, I am absolutely I count my blessings every day.
0: I love that. Oh. Have you mentioned David Crumholtz and obviously all the folks we just talked about, but are there other kind of voiceover heroes or, or acting heroes that you've gotten to work with that you, you're like, oh, I'm putting this one oh. in the memory pocket?
2: Tom Kenny. Uh, yes. I got to work with Tom Kenny on my birthday on Samurai Jack. I got to work with John DiMaggio. Yes. Uh, yes. Also, and... For me I think one of the greatest voiceover actors in the business and frankly one of the best actors I've ever had the privilege to work with is a, a, a gentleman named Jeff Bennett. Oh sure. He was the voice of Johnny Bravo. I mean his 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 resume is so long. And we go back a long time. We competed against each other at speech tournaments in Texas back in the late 70s. Wow. Really? Jeff Bennett was at my bachelor party when I got married in 1984.
0: Okay. What? Okay, we got to get you both back you on the same episode oh, for
2: Cora. You are both coming
1: back for Cora. Jeff played my dad in American Dragon, Jake Long. He was Pops. I see him. I call him Pops.
0: Hey, Pops. Didn't Lauren play your mom in that?
2: Lauren Tom played my mom in Jeff Bennett. Ah, my dad. I love it. And you know the thing about Jeff, he's such a wonderful actor. Again, when we would compete against each other, he would always beat me. But you know what I really hate about him? He's a nice guy. He's a nice guy, <laughs> a nice too. Guy. You know, it's Super like nice no one should be this talented and also a nice guy. He was at your bachelor party. I have party. pictures of him at my bachelor party holding my very He's 80s wow. square tie between his teeth. I think we might have been having a little tea that night, you know, to be honest with you. A little jazz Imagine, tea. The
0: image is very 80s. Like, not just the tie, but just having the tie and the teeth somehow seems like in the In his 80s. teeth, yeah.
2: Square tie, It's it. a square, <laughs> squared the at the teeth. bottom. Very narrow, you know. Oh, 80s. that's so
0: satisfying. That's a really, really cool thing to know about you and Jeff. I love that. We are absolutely going to tap into that when we get into horror, since you both did it. Should we segue into our Avatar-specific questions, Bosco? What do you think? Let's
1: do it. So it's a couple of questions. But first and foremost, what are some of your favorite Iro moments or
2: storylines? Well, I think mine, like everybody else's, I think that I th- is, Iroh's moment is uh, the leaves from the vine. And I, I think why that moment is so impactful, and it's one reason why we're still talking about the show all these years, is it never shied away from very difficult things, and I would say that you, you look at that scene, and you say, uh, ostensibly, this is about death. But it's not really about death at all. It's about grief, which is a great deal more complicated than death. Mm, well and said. I think that's why it resonates yeah. with so many people, because who among us hasn't lost someone that we love very much? Really? And and perhaps for for some young people watching, really, really kids, maybe this was the first time that they got an idea. Oh, my God, everybody's not here forever. It's, these things happen. And I think one of the reasons why the show is so enormously popular and getting more popular all the time, because it did not shy away from these things. Uh, My second one, certainly in terms of my own work, uh, was the scene where Iroh forgives Zuko in The Tent. That scene gets Crazy. me every time, and I recorded wow. it. I knew what was coming, but when I actually watched it animated, that the, I, I cried too. It's so beautiful, with the tears streaming down the face, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, and again, it's one of those things. That they're showing you what forgiveness looks like, what grace looks like, things that you wouldn't think a kid's show would delve into this sort of thing, but it did. People learn things from that show, things like, you know, like forgiveness, showing grace unearned forgiveness and that scene is also another one of my absolute favorites
0: Oh, it's so good. I I'm just so struck by what you said about grief. I feel like you've just added uh, another level of, and I will try to outdo you from ostensibly to profundity. Uh, oh, that you excellent. have added. <laughs> oh, you you win. <laughs> Score love one for has Janet. Been thrown, my friend. <laughs> no, but I just think that's so true. And and you know Dante's brought it up many times, very wisely uh, on the podcast. This idea of of Iroh being this lovable, you know, sort of goof and some ways. And then, even when we start to understand how wise he truly is, and he has all these sort of wonderful nuggets that um, are very easy to call back up and kind of lean on when we need them, uh, that in a kids' show, you wouldn't necessarily ever see why he's so wise. You wouldn't necessarily, you just sort of accept, like, well, you know, right. our elders, they're wise. And that's kind of hard for kids to wrap their heads around, I think, sometimes. And so, it's yeah. very bold and brave to show. More of a character's backstory, especially one that you know you're sort of confused anyway, because you're like, oh wait, I, I, you keep telling me that he was playing siege to the to Bossing say, but that doesn't seem like Iroh. And just to get those peaks in and realize what how rich and how hard his experience was before we meet him on the show. It's just very special, and I think you you know you you clearly see that and have such a great relationship to that.
2: I think that's one of the reasons, perhaps, why Iro helped Zuko because Iro had his own redemption arc that he had to find, you know, at, at yeah. great personal cost. I would love to ask this question of Mike and Brian if I ever get the chance. Iro's is clearly a very loving man. He clearly he loves his nephew. I think he even loves Azula, but not once, not once is Mrs. Iroh alluded to, or mm. even mentioned. Oh. And I find it weird yeah. that such a loving man, who was clearly very open oh. to talking about his feelings, never even mentions her. I mean, I have my own theories. You know, I think maybe she died in childbirth, giving birth to Lutan, and it's too painful for him. But I would like to find out. And I have a feeling okay. that's not omitted unintentionally. Yeah. I'm sure everything on that show is intentional. I bet you there is a reason for it.
1: so we ask these questions of all of our guests that come on the show greg and we start off with do you have any favorite hybrid animals from the show what's your favorite hybrid uh, animal from the show
2: probably the uh the turtle ducks i think
0: yeah i think so Classics? Yeah. Uh, me too. i think
2: so because they're just so cute and i think i actually have one here someone gave me one and i actually have it just outside yeah. um, i also have one also i have on my one shelf. too
0: I, we a love cro- our a crocheted yes. one
2: they're so cute you know they're they're turtle ducks
0: the fact that we're sort of introduced to them as we're learning more about zuko and by virtue of that more about iroh and it's great yeah we love those turtle ducks uh You probably know this, but, you know, relationships, romantic relationships uh, play a big role in uh, fandoms uh, from who should have been a couple in Star Wars to who should have been a couple in Avatar or uh, people who love the sort of canon relationships that you see played out in the stories. Are there any ships from Avatar that you are a fan of?
2: Uh, Way into this, huh? Row and T. <laughs> How's that?
0: <laughs> Row and T. Yes, Iro
2: well, and T. That, well, that's, that's an answer that the can't win. get me in the yeah. I- Is the it I-T
0: or T-Row? That's the question. T-Row. That- I like T-Row. T-Row, T-row would be I the one. T-row.
2: Absolutely. Love it. T-Row. Uh,
1: yeah. And then, of course, uh, the big question is, if you were a bender, Greg, what kind of bender would you be?
2: You know, I think I would probably be an airbender because I've yeah. always had a somewhat mm. mystical bent anyway. And I think that's that's sort of what I'm drawn to. You know, I don't think I would be a firebender because I'm not terribly fiery individual. I'm actually, you know, sometimes too chill, as a matter of fact. Uh, (laughs) I think definitely I stand with the air nomads, man.
1: The Air Nomads. Okay, shout out to the
0: Air Nomads. Yeah, and this is a little bit of a pattern because Andrew Hubner, who wrote the tale of Iroh from Tales of Ba Sing Se, came on the show and we talked a lot about his impetus for writing Leaves from the Vine. And you two would get on like a house on fire because I guess fire, I mean, that came out very well that reference, <laughs> uh, in that particular context unintentionally. But we kind of thought he would be because he identified so strongly with Iroh and we thought he would be perhaps a firebender because we knew. but he also yeah. Also air. Air, right, yeah. like, well, yeah, he also said air, right, Dante? And it's like, well Iroh's more of an airbender by the time we understand him. Like, you know uh,
2: Absolutely. There he has a whole lot of air in him. Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh Iroh is so powerful. He's almost an avatar himself in many ways. Ooh, I know?
0: love it. I love it. Yeah. Agreed. You
2: know, I think that's also one of the things that makes him so powerful. I think he goes through that. He talks about, you know, Earth is the element of uh yes. What is that? I forget.
1: Well, he talks about it and through the thing about using other elements to kind of help his firebending. Yeah, fire learning bending. and respecting. Like he's like, I yeah. use earthbending to do this. So not not say he was an avatar, but he was using Avatar-esque things to like improve
2: his fire. Absolutely. Bending. Yeah.
0: And also seems to see spirit dragons. So let's not overlook that. Like there's something very special going on with him. That's true.
2: My understanding is that Iroh doesn't actually physically die. He just says, "You know what? I'm going to go live in the spirit world with my buddies yeah. in the spirit world," which is, yep. I mean, that's that's pretty heavy when you think it's about like it. <gasps> like Obi Wan yeah. Kenobi, like Obi
1: Wan Kenobi just one
0: disappears. <gasps> Wait, have we never compared him to Alec Guinness's Obi Wan? And, like, have we never? Mm, I don't think we've ever really, made that but comparison, yes. but that's a really good one. I
2: always think of the Star Wars comparison of as Yoda. I think of Iroh's Yoda, but actually, yeah, Obi Wan is actually a better comparison in many ways, you know?
0: Mm. Oh, wow. This is exciting. See, look. Mind blown. All this stuff keeps bubbling up. We'll never run out of stuff to talk about with this show because every time we bring someone like you in, we, like, peel another layer of the onion. It's very, very, very fun. We feel so lucky Greg, thank you so much for doing this. Is thank there, you so much. Can people find you on social media? Is there a place they can go to find out which cons well, you're going to be at and all that good stuff?
2: They can find me on social media. I don't, if they want to, <laughs> you know. Mostly, I'm on Twitter, and Twitter is a poisonous place, and no one should ever go there ever. <laughs> but I am on there. I have an Instagram, <laughs> Greg Bolden Iroh. I currently there's a Disney show called The Ghost and Molly McGee. Yes. I uh, I play uh, I play one of the ghost magistrates. Yeah. Uh, uh, a ghost named Bartholomew, whose voice is completely based on William Daniels. And I'm just awesome. so glad they didn't realize they could have just gotten William Daniels instead <laughs> of me. So, you know, thank you, Disney. I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad, you know, you didn't realize you could do that. You know,
0: I feel like every voiceover actor says that they're like, but I'm basically just doing X, Y, Z. So it's a long tradition of imagining the character, the the actor in your head that you're sort of trying to sound like, and then actually, you know, yes. making it your own and killing it and doing a great job and getting a part.
2: Well, you know, that's something actually I learned from Jeff Bennett many years See? ago. He's telling me that his approach is, you know, you if you start with an impression, it ultimately will become your own.
0: Yes. But it's always a Correct.
2: good starting place because it sort of cuts to the chase a little bit. Yes. For example, I did a, I did a character in Clone Wars called uh, Terra Sinube. And Terra Sinube is terribly old, almost as old as Yoda. And if you go back and you watch the very first two Harry Potter movies, yes! you'll realize I'm doing Richard the Harris. voice of Richard Harris Dumbledore. as Dumbledore. Yes, I hear it. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: It's wonderful, yeah, yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. I would listen to that voice all day long.
2: Yeah, I, I like that character. I mean, literally, it's in my will. I've got to do so much cool stuff you know on my tombstone one day I wanted to say you know Greg Baldwin my dates you know devoted husband beloved father firebending Jedi yay hey! that is my epitaph you oh. you know? firebending Jedi Oh,
0: that's brilliant Greg thank you so much how do you it. beat going out on firebending Jedi on the tombstone <laughs> yeah, no, that was like good. the best mic drop ever thank <laughs> that you that so that good, much good. such a pleasure Greg oh, great. A pleasure my pleasure All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Avatar Braving the Elements. And hey, make sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a review. All of that really helps the podcast so much. And we love you guys. Next week, we are back with educator and Avatar expert Ijeoma Njaka to discuss the turning points throughout book two. Let's get cerebral. You can follow me on social media at the JV Club on Instagram and at Janet Barney on Twitter.
1: And I'm at Dante Bosco on both of those.
0: We'll see you next Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app,